Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Jonathan Wilson, who is the author of Kick and Run, which is a memoir of his, and we have to be very particular here, his passion, not his obsession, for soccer, or football as they call it. And I'm delighted to have you here, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Ron. This really is a life story told through the framework of football and your fandom and the ways that it's affected your, your life has equal footing with the other events that, you know, the sorts of family history that we find in memoir. Yeah, I think what happened was I, I'd written a number of essays, sort of memoirish, but also seemed to feature football in some kind of way, or soccer in some kind of way. I realized I had a bunch of bricks, but I didn't have the cement to put the wall together. And then when I started thinking about it, I realized that this was a sort of constant leitmotif and would be a way for me to tell the story of, not entirely of my life, but of, you know, episodes in my life via soccer, via football. Yeah, and it's interesting how soccer resonates through some of the, what would otherwise be sort of like disparate elements. Like, I'm thinking particularly of the resonances between your recollections of your childhood games of soccer and then much later in the story, your experiences watching your kids play soccer and, and coaching their teams. One of the major differences was that when I was growing up in London, uh, parents were never present at any games. We were kind of left on our own um, and sort of delighted in that in some way. Certainly playing at school, playing in the park, after school, even playing for my elementary school and I go to games, the teacher would leave at half time because he had to get home, you know, and then of course we all get beaten up at the end of the game where there's no one to protect us. But in America, of course, uh, it's the complete opposite, like intense uh, parental presence, hovering, a lot of input. And I remember being, I think I write about it in the book, being the first time I was coaching my oldest son, who was, I think, probably six or seven at the time. And there was a fantastic kid playing on our team called, um, actually, Adam Pfeiffer. And he'd scored like five or six goals. And all the parents started yelling at me, like, take him out, take him out. And I didn't understand what was happening. Because I had just come from England. It's like, what are you talking about? Take him out. He's just scored six goals. We're crushing them. Why on earth would I take him out? And there was this uh, issue, of course, of self-esteem. But I noticed that in in the United States, that issue was only present on the soccer field. That when I was watching Little League, nobody said, take out the good pitcher and put in the hopeless pitcher. Nobody said, let's put the littlest kid at center in basketball games. But in soccer was somehow this locus of bourgeois anxiety. You know, so that was like the hugest contrast between my own experience playing as a child and being here was the, the, the presence and the input of parents, some of whom became incredibly knowledgeable about soccer within about one week of finding out about the game. Right, because your experience as an English citizen growing up with soccer and then coming, I mean, you write about this as well, arriving in New York City in the mid-70s. 76, yeah. The, the night before the bicentennial. Mm -hmm. And at that time, yeah, I, I don't even think we knew about Pele yet. America's knowledge of soccer was minimal at best. Yeah. Well, I can't remember when that league got going that Pele played in for the New York Cosmos. 
whether it was before or after that. But yeah, it certainly wasn't on TV. You know, you couldn't watch any games. And I remember, I, again, I wrote about it in the, in the book. I remember, you know, I was at Columbia for a semester. And I remember watching people play and it was this sort of awkward dance in the quad. And I, I don't mean it meanly. It was simply people who were trying to play a game that was totally unfamiliar to them and that they hadn't grown up playing. You know, the awkwardness which comes with trying to play a game when you learn about it when you're an adolescent rather as a child and things don't come naturally. So yeah, it was it was a world without soccer, New York in, in the mid-1970s. But there's always been, and I wrote about this when I wrote about the World Cup in 94, there's always been a hidden world of immigrants who were obsessed with soccer, but they were sort of invisible for a long time. In fact, they're more visible now than they've ever been before. I don't yeah, I was going to say we should talk about the differences between what it was like for you as a correspondent from The New Yorker in 94 when the Cup was held in America, running around trying to find those pockets of, of football subculture versus, you know, like the most recent Cup in 2010 when it seemed like, I mean, Definitely in New York. And things literally did grind to a halt for three weeks. Yeah, and huge TV viewing audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, when I was covering the World Cup for the New Yorker, the sense, the, the when you were in the stadiums, it was powerful, and you felt like you were in a big, huge, enthusiastic crowd. Although, as I, as I write in the book, you know, for the first couple of weeks, I, there was something wrong. There was something, or I felt there was something wrong, something I couldn't, quite figure out about my feeling at the games. And then I realized that what it was was that I wasn't terrified. You know, that actually it was kind of nice <laughs> to go to a game in the United States, although it was totally over-policed because of, you know, anxiety about soccer hooligans from England. But England weren't in the World Cup in 94, and everyone behaved themselves very well. But so in the stadium, it was exciting, but you'd leave the stadium and there was no one to talk to about soccer it was over you you know except cab drivers from countries where soccer was played i remember being in uh, i think it was san francisco and watching a game and then going back into the city and you wouldn't have known the world cup was happening in 1994 except in the stadium where it was played and you're right complete change last time more and more americans interested more and more americans are watching premier league maybe it also has something to do with fantasy soccer i don't know and gambling but uh but maybe not but i think it's really sort of taking off i mean how many there was it 15 million americans kids play soccer something like that but they've always played and not watched and now i think that's starting to that's starting to change and i bet there'll be huge tv audience for the for the world cup in brazil I mean, look, you know, there's also the fact that this, this, the strange phenomenon where the U.S. national uh, men's team has to play in certain parts of the country, you know, essentially there are no Mexicans to start with, you know. If they play in California, everybody supports the other team. You know, there's 100,000 Mexicans in the crowd, so they have to play in Colorado. They have to find the whitest place in America, usually when it's snowing as well, to, to you know, in order in order to get support. Right, so, or so even like a friendly at, uh, you know, say, like you couldn't have like a Portugal-America friendly at Fenway, no, because like New England's Portuguese no, community, right, which is right, right, or you can you can have a U.S. Ireland game at, at, at Foxborough, you know, or um, at, at Gillette Stadium because of the same the same thing. Happen. No, they don't only play; <laughs> they don't really have home games except in Colorado, you know. But maybe that will change. You mentioned 
that one of the key elements of the 94 Cup for you attending those games was, you know, the feeling of not feeling terrified. Yeah. And that sort of links to a thread in the early part of the book, especially, about the experiences of being a, a young Jewish boy and then a young Jewish man growing up in 50s and 60s England. Yeah. Um, because in addition to the hooliganism of British soccer fandom, you were also facing ver- a very specific anti-Semitism. That was certainly my experience. It wasn't all uh, connected to soccer. By the way, you know, I just want to qualify the terror to say that there's also an extraordinary adrenaline rush in an English football ground, you know, even if there are skinheads behind the goal who <laughs> look terrifying. You know, it, it's a rush to be in a, at a really huge game in England or in Italy or in Spain or in Mexico, Brazil, wherever. So certainly, you know, I report in the in the memoir, you know, one incident when I was a kid and I went to a game and I got locked out. I couldn't get a ticket and I went home and, and these two thugs who were sitting behind me on the bus wrote Jew on the back of my back when as, as we were riding along. It both was and wasn't connected to soccer and it was also a class issue, it was also a religious issue, you know, something manifest in England in various ways. And, and then it oddly sort of all bubbled up into something much bigger surrounding the team that I support, Tottenham Hotspur, who are known as the Jewish team in England and who've been on the receiving end, even though they have no Jewish players, and there are many other teams that have Jewish owners and Jewish supporters. Spurs are identified as the Jewish team. They're on the receiving end of a lot of anti-Semitic abuse, which, as you know, they the fans kind of appropriated and began calling themselves the Yids, which has led to a very recent, very interesting controversy about this this stuff. Right, and you write about how the first time that you experienced this, you started to panic, and then it took your nephew explaining, it's like, no, it's okay, that's what we call ourselves. That's what we call ourselves, exactly. I've been out of the country for a while, and well, a long time. I'd gone back to watch this Worthington Cup game between Tottenham and, uh, and a, a mediocre team called Blackburn, Blackburn Rovers, to whom, of course, we lost in the final after I spent a fortune flying over and going to Cardiff for this game. And, yeah, and we were in this tunnel, and the police were separating us from the other fans, of course, and everyone started shouting, yes. And I, I, yeah, I thought it was like Nuremberg rally or something. Like, What's going on? And my nephew said, yeah, it's, it's all right. It's us. It's us. We're the yes. We're the yes. And then we got in the ground, and the Tottenham supporters unfurled this enormous Israeli flag. And I remember saying to my nephew, you know, the political supporters of Israel, he says they don't even know where it is on the map. But there's this odd identification. It's the same with Ajax in, in uh, Holland. They're also the, the Jewish team. I mean, the, the complicating factor is, of course, that it's not really... I, I mean, I think the chance is fairly benign, and I think it's a fairly useful appropriation, but you have to take it with a grain of salt and understand that the people who are chanting it are not ta- necessarily Tottenham's Jewish supporters, who only really form a tiny minority of Tottenham mm-hmm. support. They're people who were not for a sort of happy accident of geography and allegiance would be yelling the abuse the other way. You know, the, these aren't like the sweetest guys in the world trying to be excessively tolerant and, and, and stopping anti-Semitism. You mentioned some of the class and... and and other issues that, that this ties into. And it seems like that, particularly the class issues, kind of fueled your mother's antipathy towards football growing up. I mean, she really, 
hated the sport and hated that you loved the sport. Yes, yes. I mean, my mother grew up in Dalston in North London. Her father was a baker. She didn't have a, uh, much money. And, um, and my father grew up even poorer in Whitechapel in London. And uh, they sort of made it out into the, into the suburbs. And for them, football was associated with poverty, really, and a life that they had escaped and that they didn't want me to uh, fall back into. Football, and it's true um, that in the, certainly true that in the 50s, when I was growing up and early 60s, soccer football was by and large in England a, a working class, a sport with working class spectators played by working class men. Uh, there weren't the mega salaries that there are now. I mean, it was starting to get bigger and bigger, nothing like it, you know. And, and yes, it, uh, football was anathema to, to my mother, although she mellowed, you know, later on in, in life when football kind of got mainstream. But to her, my uh, passion for soccer was manifestation of a, for her it could only be of a, of a desire to be a, a sort of impoverished loser. <laughs> That's why I report in the memoir, you know, a scene where we went to visit some friends of hers who my mother was trying to impress, and the, my mother's friend asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I said a, a footballer. And then when we got back in the car, my mother whacked me around the face and said, "Why couldn't you have said something professional, like a barrister?" And you mentioned the issue of, you know, your mother, the, the striving and the wanting to put that life behind you. And that ties into, particularly in the final chapters, thinking of the life that she's trying to put behind and, and keep you from discovering. You know, there's this whole side of your family that you never knew about growing up. Yeah. Because she and... I mean, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, but basically she kind of coerced your father into into going along with this, forgetting about this whole wing of the family. I think there were two things going on there. Um, or so I think it's a little, you know, overdetermined. I mean, yeah, I didn't discover until very late in life that my father had lost um, 62 relatives in the camps, in Treblinka mainly and, and in Auschwitz. He never spoke about it. That my grandmother had eight siblings, I think it was, who had died in the concentration camps. This was never spoken about. I grew up not knowing anything about it and only came to this knowledge, you know, many, many years after my father had died and my grandparents were dead. And I think that, I think it's not so much that my mother coerced my father. I think that they both wanted to move on with their lives. And their lives during the war had been difficult in their own way. The roof was blown off our house by a V2 rocket. And I think it was not uncommon. It was not uncommon for Jews to kind of want to move on in those years, in the 50s and 60s, and not to want to talk about what had happened or to... My parents, of course, were both born in England, 1906 and 1909. But, you know, to, maybe they were trying to protect us. You're right in the sense that my mother was not particularly... I mean, in the same way that, that the past, that she thought football would lead me back into a world that she had escaped from, the world of Jews in Europe was an even further stage back that she didn't really want to take on. She wanted to be very English and very assimilated. So, in a way, 
she closed off that information for a number of reasons. But I think that my father played his part too, because he he chose not to not I not to tell us about it. And I think he was probably protective in some way. You mentioned at the beginning that you'd written a couple of things here and there and recognized that there was this connective tissue. Yeah. And I just want to sort of want to cycle back and revisit the moment at which after having written a couple of different types of things, I mean, you've written some novels, you've written short story collections, revisiting that moment of decision where you're like, I think I have a memoir here and I want to put these things together into a memoir. Yeah. I, I, I read a very funny interview with Jeff Dyer once where he was, he was talking about the reading habits of men. And he said as they get older, I understand that men read more and more nonfiction. Says, and then she said, and then I understand it reaches a certain point where it's only military history, and and he says, I'm looking forward to that, and I think that I had some that the shift towards nonfiction was something you know I'd been feeling for a while, although it it, it turned out it was not permanent because now I'm back writing a, another novel, but I don't know. I, I mean, I had some like there's there's one section which I had written as a short story and then I decided to tell it as a you know sort of but why not say what happened to 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 do it in non-fiction to do it as a memoir and then there was another section I also written as a short story so I, I suddenly felt that I had some desire to tell the story as it as it had as it had been maybe it was also because for example that there's a story in in the memoir about when my parents buy me a soccer ball first soccer ball for my birthday i dribble it through the park and i take it to the library and it was covered in mud and the librarian wouldn't let me bring the book in and i had to leave the ball outside and uh when i went back out the the, the ball wasn't there had been stolen this was like worst trauma of my life my parents didn't have the money to buy me a new one and I think I told my sons this story so many times that I think everybody was sick of hearing it. I thought, well, I better get this down on paper now and like get it out of my system. Then nobody will have to listen to these stories ever again. They can just read them. So we do have a cup coming up next year, a yeah. World Cup. And what are your plans? Any temptation to go down to Brazil? The poet Rowan Ricardo Phillips and I are going to be blogging about it for the Paris Review daily. Not from Brazil, unfortunately, from in front of the TV. So I think we haven't quite worked out how it's going to be done. I think we're going to take turns or we're going to have some kind of conversation. I mean, I'd love to go to Brazil, but I think I'll probably end up watching it, watching it on TV. No, I'm really excited about it. Early strong hopes for England? No, England have no chance at all. They're rubbish. Well, they were lost, just lost to Chile 2 nothing. Well, they're not total rubbish. I mean, you know, but they, I, I don't think they have any chance of winning it whatsoever. I mean, maybe they'll get through the, the group stages. And the U.S. may, may do as well as England, you know, in this. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. We'll have to see who. The U.S. usually, strangely, in the World Cup does pretty well. Gets through the quarterfinals or something. But I think Belgium is a very interesting team in this World Cup. But, you know, probably the Brazil playing at home has got to be, you know, one of the favorites. Argentina, if Messi, but Messi never plays for Argentina the way that he plays for Barcelona. But if he does, then Argentina could do something. Then there's always Germany, Holland, so on. I, I don't think England really has a chance.
So you can see how the World Cup unfolds later in 2014 as Jonathan Wilson blogs it for the Paris Review Daily. In the meantime, his memoir is Kick and Run. It's published by Bloomsbury, and I encourage you all to go out and read it. You have been listening to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan. If you are subscribed on iTunes, thank you for that. And if you aren't subscribed in iTunes, it's very easy to do. And then you'll get new episodes as they're delivered. You can also rate and review the podcast, which will be a great way for other people to find out about it as well. Again, thank you for listening, and I look forward to joining you again with another episode soon. Take care.